Well, good morning, Lighthouse Baptist Church. Good morning. How are y'all doing today? Good. Well, I missed y'all last week, so it feels good to be back with y'all this week. So a couple weeks ago, we went over Mary when she learned that she was going to give birth to Jesus. We talked about how she declared herself a servant of the Lord. Today, we're talking about what it means to magnify the Lord. So the text that we're in today is Luke chapter 1, verse 39 through 56. Luke chapter 1, verse 39 through 56. And this comes directly after our passage from a couple weeks ago. So Mary has learned that she's going to give birth to Jesus, and now this is part of her response to that. And so remember, we're in our series on Advent. Advent is the time of anticipating Christmas. It's the time of waiting for Christmas. We're going along on this journey with Mary as we await Jesus to be born. So, starting in verse 39... It says, in those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby, who we know is John the Baptist, leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed, for he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with Elizabeth about three months and returned to her home. Now some of your Bibles may refer to us, you know, we all have like a heading in our Bibles for different sections uh, my heading says Mary's Song of Praise, the Magnificat. Does anybody else's say the Magnificat? 
So some of y'all do. What does that mean? What's a magnificat? They didn't really explain it there. Well, magnificat is the Latin word for magnify. It's alluding to Mary's claim that my soul magnifies the Lord. So what does it mean to magnify something? What do you think when I say magnify? To be made larger. Yeah, exactly. To be made larger. I, my mind goes straight to a magnifying glass. It sounds just like what it says. It makes something larger. It expands something that, so that you can see it better, so that you can focus on it better. You can think of a microscope. Uh, basically, it's all the same idea. Even though Mary wouldn't have had these tools, the idea of the word is the same. Is the same. You're expanding something to make it larger so that you can see it better. And this prayer that we just read, this prayer is really huge. N.T. Wright, one of the leading scholars of the New Testament, he says the Magnificat of Mary, the Magnification of Mary, is one of the most famous songs in Christianity. It's been whispered in monasteries, chanted in cathedrals, recited in small remote churches by evening candlelight, and even set to music with trumpets and kettle drums by Johann Sebastian Bach. So this prayer... It's a prayer that we can pray all the time. We don't have to wait for Christmas. But as we're expecting Christmas, as we're waiting for it, as we're going through Advent, and we look at Mary's Advent experience, this can become a prayer of ours too. In other words, we can learn to magnify the Lord. So the question is, how do we do that? And how does that affect us? Well, the first thing we see is that we magnify the Lord with our innermost being, with the deepest part of ourselves. What does Mary say? She says, my soul magnifies the Lord. What does soul mean? Well, when you look at this in Greek, the Greek word is suke, which means breath, the breath of Life. See, Mary doesn't view herself as just a random assortment of bones, organs, and flesh. No, she sees herself as someone who's been given the breath of life by God. And she says, I'm going to use the breath of life that God's given me to look back at the God who gave it to me. In other words, my innermost being the deepest part of myself is how I'm going to magnify, how I'm going to look at, how I'm going to expand my vision of the Lord. This isn't just a passive glance at the Lord. This is with all of your heart, with everything you have, looking deeply and intently to the Lord and into the Lord and at the Lord. And so sometimes we may say, well, well we can't see the Lord. He's not here so how are we supposed to look? How are we supposed to magnify the Lord? Well, the Lord is here, but sometimes we don't always see it. Sometimes we're not really looking for it. It makes me think of in Genesis chapter 28. If you'll turn with me to Genesis chapter 28, verses 10 through 22. So this is a familiar story. Somewhat long passage. 
there's a lot to learn from it. Genesis chapter 28, verses 10 through 22. So in this passage, Jacob is on the run from his brother. Really, his whole life, he has really not had much to do with God at all. But now he's on the run for his life. Verses 10 through 22 says, Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on that ladder. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham and the God of, J- the God of Isaac, the land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel, but the place, but the name of the city was Luz at the first. Then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I may come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you've given me, I will give a full tenth to you. So you might be thinking, Cody, you could have saved a lot of time by just reading that one verse that said, surely the Lord was in this place and I did not know it. I mean, that's the verse I wanted you to see. So why did I spend all that time showing you the dream, showing you Jacob's response? Because Jacob had a similar experience to Mary. He heard a a message from God about himself, about God, about God's plans But Mary and Jacob were very similar because they didn't just say, oh, that was a weird dream or that was a weird message and walk off. No, they really decided to magnify the Lord. They realized that God was in that place. And we may say, well, I don't really see God where I am. But no, God is where we are. We don't always have to see it to understand it. Jacob surely didn't see it. He said, surely the Lord was in this place and I did not know it. Mary wasn't getting a reminder on her phone, hey, expect Gabriel to show up today. No, that was all a surprise. But they didn't just glance at it. They didn't just walk away from it and say, oh, that was weird. No, they both prayed. That is part of magnifying the Lord. It's praying, it's speaking to God, it's thinking about God. Jacob set up a stone of remembrance. Mary 
said a prayer. Jacob said a prayer. They all took the time to think about God, to focus on God. Basically, to take God that was kind of in the background, put him in the foreground, expand him, look deeply into him. They were magnifying him with the deepest part of herself. And, and that's why Mary says, my soul, my breath, my life that God has given me magnifies the Lord. I don't do this flippantly. I don't do this carelessly. This is serious, prayerful, reverent time that I do with the deepest part of myself. And that's what we do when we magnify the Lord. We think about God. We look to God. You know, Mary lists out who she knows God to be, what God has done prayerfully. That's how she magnifies the Lord with the deepest part of herself. And magnifying the Lord changes what we focus on. I mentioned earlier that Mary started describing who God is and what he has done. Let's read over it again. She says, For he, God, has looked on the humble estate of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. All people will know I've been helped. For God, who is mighty, has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown his strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. What is she doing? She's recounting to herself who God is. In other words, she's changing her focus. Now, Richard War is a Catholic priest and he talked about how he once talked to a neuroscientist. You know, a neuroscientist is somebody that looks at the brain, who studies the way that we think. And he said, Richard, in my research on the brain, I found out, and I have, he said, I have comprehensive research about it. I can give it to you. But when it comes to positive and negative experiences, negative experiences are like Velcro. As soon as you have them, they latch onto the brain like Velcro. Positive experiences are like Teflon. They just bounce off the brain. The way to make sure that positive experiences Velcro to your mind the same way that negative experiences Velcro to your mind, he said it was to savor the positive experiences for at least 15 seconds. And I know this is true in my life. I remember when I worked at a fast food restaurant and I would call my friend and we would talk and I would say, oh, I had some crazy bad experiences sometimes with customers you know, who are rude and say, oh man, tell me about them. I want to hear about it. And I would think, well, I, can't, I actually can't remember more than like two. I mean, at first I they dominated my mind because I had hundreds of positive experiences, but the couple negative experiences I felt like happened a lot, but really they didn't. I just was thinking about them so much because they just stick to your brain. I wasn't savoring the positive experiences that I had. But this guy said, 
It takes 15 seconds of savoring positive experiences for it to really stick to your brain. You know what's interesting? When you read the Magnificat of Mary, when you read this prayer, I read it, and when you read it at an average pace, it takes about 35 seconds to read it. What is Mary doing? She's not spending just 15 seconds. She's spending 35 seconds savoring and recounting the goodness of God, what God has done for her, for her family, for people, for the world, what he's going to do. A lot of times we say, thank you, God, you've done good things for me. That took about four seconds. Thank you, God, you gave me this and this and this today. We don't savor those positive experiences. And so, of course, the negative experiences of life stick to us. But Mary has all the reason in the world to be negative, doesn't she? I mean, she's about to be in a very tricky situation. She's about to be pregnant outside of marriage. So that's going to give her some bad looks. It's possible that people would want to stone her for supposedly having committed adultery. It's possible that Joseph is going to leave her, and we know from the Bible that Joseph does consider letting her go away quietly. Not only that, the angel told her that her cousin Elizabeth is going to have a child, and she's six months pregnant. So what happens in our passage today? She goes and makes the journey over to visit her cousin Elizabeth. And because we're not from here, we don't really... Like if I said she went from Dallas to Houston, that would make a lot of sense in our mind. But when it says that she made this travel to her cousin, we say, okay, did she just walk next door? Well, that journey that she made, it's a three-day journey. Probably 80 to 100 miles. She's probably exhausted. She's probably had a lot of negative experiences in the past few days. But what does she do? She magnifies the Lord. And by magnifying the Lord, she's able to savor the Lord, savor all the good things that he's doing in her life. We look back at Mary, and if we could talk to her, we could say, Mary, you're about to experience one of the most incredible things that could ever happen to somebody. You're about to give birth to the Son of God. You're about to give birth to the King of kings, the Lord of lords. When you see him, you'll see God in the flesh. And doesn't that outweigh every other negative experience you could be going through? And Mary is rejoicing. She's celebrating. She's having a party with Elizabeth. How does this make sense? How can she rejoice by savoring the goodness of God that no trial and no circumstance can change. And that is what happens to us when we magnify the Lord, when we expand the Lord, when we look deeply at Him and pray to Him, thanking Him for who He is and what He's done. It changes what we focus on. It changes us from focusing on the negative to focusing on the good and the positive. Well, in chapter 2, we're going to skip a little bit ahead. We're going to skip past the birth of Jesus to when Jesus has already been born. So Luke chapter 2, verse 34 through 35. So Luke chapter 2, verse 34 through 35. Now I'll give you some background for this text. Jesus has been born. Mary and Joseph are taking Jesus for 
the purification rituals that they would have to take, especially for a first firstborn son. Now Simeon has been waiting to see the coming one, the coming Messiah. And so he tells Mary and Joseph uh, words about Jesus. He says, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. That's verse 29. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. So he's speaking those words about Jesus. And in the verses we're looking at, after it says his father and mother marveled at what was said about him, it says Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother. So he's talking to Mary and Joseph, and now he turns exclusively to Mary. This message is just for Mary now. He turned to Mary his mother. Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed and a sword will pierce through your own soul also. A sword will pierce through your own soul also so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. What's happening here? Your soul will be pierced? Weren't we in just chapter 1 where Mary was saying, my soul magnifies the Lord? But now we're learning that Mary's soul is going to be pierced? Mary can magnify the Lord. But why is it important that her soul be pierced? Why is it necessary? Why would she have to hear this? Why would this be a part of what's going to happen to her? Why is it so important for her soul to be pierced? Well, I remember when I was about five or six years old, I think my parents had taught me about Jesus. They taught me about Christianity. They taught me about sin. They tried to explain the gospel message to me. It sounded nice. I had some knowledge about it. But in an important part of my life, I remember for some reason there was a, a movie on. It may have been like a Christian television network. I, I really don't remember. But apparently it was a movie about Jesus. And I didn't really know exactly what was going on. But it was a crucifixion scene. And it showed Jesus' hand pressed down on the cross. You know, it showed somebody holding the nail and it showed somebody hammering it in. Well, this was pretty hard for me to see at age five or six, whatever I was. And I remember crying. I remember crying at that. And that was important because I had head knowledge about Jesus. But this was the first time that I ever had heart knowledge about Jesus. It's one thing to have head knowledge, to know what Jesus did, to know about Jesus, to know about God. It's another thing to be moved by what Jesus did for you. In other words, my soul was pierced when I saw that Jesus was pierced. And Jesus was pierced so that our soul would be pierced. Because as much as Mary knew about God, as much as she could magnify God, she was one day going to magnify the Lord in a deeper and better 
way. Because the truth is we cannot really magnify the Lord until we see what he did for us on the cross. We know Jesus most accurately, most intimately, and most deeply when we see what he did for us on the cross. And so Simeon says, yes, one day your soul will be pierced. But that's because one day she's going to see God more clearly. One day she's going to understand God better than she does now. How? Because sometimes I wonder, what was Jesus' best sermon? What was the best sermon that Jesus ever preached? And every time I ask myself that, I come to the conclusion, when Jesus was on the cross. When Jesus was on the cross, that's the best sermon that he ever preached. That's the most clearly he's ever communicated to us what God looks like. That's the most clearly he's ever communicated to us how far he will go for us. That's the most clearly he's ever communicated to us how much he loves us. And we cannot truly magnify the Lord. We cannot truly see the Lord for who he is until our souls are pierced by what he went through, what he did for us. And only by having our innermost being, our soul, the deepest part of ourselves pierced by what Jesus did for us, can we be grateful? Can we have the reason and the motivation to go on to follow Jesus, to obey Jesus? Because a lot of times we have the head knowledge and we say, well, I have to follow Jesus. I have to believe in Jesus. But when we have the heart knowledge of what Jesus went through for us, then we say, I get to follow Jesus. I get to know Jesus because Jesus knows me. Jesus, before I magnified him, Jesus was magnifying me. Before I looked to God, God was looking at me. Before God was seen by me, I was seen by God. And the most clear way I've ever seen God is when he hung on the cross for me. And so when we ask ourselves, why are we celebrating Christmas? Why are we anticipating it? What is Advent all about? It's anticipating Jesus who will come to save us, to die for us, to communicate to us more clearly than ever who God is. And he did that on the cross. And when we see Jesus on the cross, not just kind of glancing over, but for over 15 seconds, savoring, Jesus did this for me. God loves me this much. Only then can we begin to do the work of magnifying the Lord, looking deeply at the Lord. And if we're going to magnify the Lord this Advent, this Christmas, and in our entire lives, it starts with looking at Jesus on the cross and knowing that this is the reason He came down. This is the reason for Christmas, so that my heart could be pierced, my soul could be pierced, not just for the sake of being pierced, but for the sake of knowing and being with God as never before, as I never could be on my own, and as I only could be through God's Holy Spirit pointing me in that direction. Let's pray. God, we, we sing songs like, Oh, come, let us adore him. And, and God, how could we not adore you when we see what you did for us on the cross? Helpless, 
baby Jesus became helpless adult Jesus on the cross, abandoned, naked, spit out, bruised, bloodied. But God, you did that. You became helpless to help us. God, we're so, so thankful. Thank you, God, for loving us that much, loving us in a way that we can never fully properly understand. But God, we're looking at the cross today. We're looking at you on the cross. And we know that when we see you on the cross, we see how much you love us, how far you're willing to go for us, and our soul magnifies you and our spirit rejoices in you because the good news is real. The good news is for us today and for us forever, God. So we want to celebrate Advent. We want to celebrate Christmas because it means that we're not abandoned, we're not orphans, but we're adopted children through, by, Jesus. We love you so much, God. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.